Welcome to the Essay for FA's Asset Allocator Podcast, a series that addresses issues of current interest to financial advisors. I am your host, Gil Weinrich, and I'm pleased to be hosting on our show, Ron Sirs, pension consultant, target date fund sponsor, and critic, Seeking Alpha contributor, and now author of a new book, Baby Boomer Investing in the Perilous Decade of the 2020s. It is a pleasure to welcome my friend and esteemed colleague, Ron Sirs, someone whose knowledge and integrity I have long admired. In the past year or so, Ron and his sister, Kathy Tarocchioni, have produced the Baby Boomer Investing Show, aimed at protecting boomers from losing their hard-earned wealth at a time of heightened risk. Ron is just now releasing a companion book with the objective of helping readers enjoy a dignified retirement. That is today's topic. Ron, welcome to our show. Thanks, Gil. Let's begin at the beginning. Your fundamental assumption is that boomers are retiring into an at-risk economy. What makes the 2020s so much riskier than earlier times? First of all, whether this was a bad economy or a good economy, folks who research retirement savings, have, virtually all of them, have concluded that there's this risk zone. Uh, and it's the transition period from working life to retirement. So the five to 10 years before and after you retire is critical for the rest of your life. If you're unlucky during that transition period and you have another 2008, for example, lose a third of your assets, the rest of your life for most people is going to be pretty ugly. So that's going on regardless of the economy. So in, in the uh, introduction to my book, I say when someone tells you it's different this time, I, I know, Gillan, when you were on our show, you, you said it's not different this time, but <laughs> I, I disagree. So let, let me tell you how, how it is different. As far as I know, interest rates in the United States have never been lower ever before. Second, by most measures, stock prices in the U.S. have never been higher. Third is our government has never, ever printed this much money. So, so far, we, we've, we've printed about $9 trillion dollars. $9 trillion is more than we've spent on all of our wars collectively. World War II is $4.7 trillion. The fourth thing, there's, there's unrest in this country. It's in Chicago, it's in Seattle, it's in Portland, and, and it's, it's everywhere because of the huge financial divide. And this money printing, the quantitative easing, has gone mostly into the pockets of the, of the wealthy. In particular, I, I, I think the scenario that we're beginning to see is all this money printing has finally started to show uh, inflation. The quantitative easing money actually caused inflation in the stock and bond markets, so it wasn't moving the consumer price index. But now this helicopter money is going into the hands of people who are buying groceries and, and paying the rents. You know, bread is expensive, gasoline is outrageous. That inflation pressure will almost certainly cause interest rates to rise. And what I'm saying is the government's pursuit of a zero interest rate policy, now ZIRP, I think they're going to run out of money to do it. So eventually, investors will demand higher interest uh, when inflation is 20%. I don't think you can keep interest rates at zero. And then there's the pressure going on. China is offering their, their government bonds, high-quality government bonds, at, at more than 3.5%. And we're trying to sell our 10-year governments at a percent and a half. So I, I think the scenario I envision is interest rates will finally give way. That will dovetail into lower security prices, and we'll start to see a stock correction. I, I just can't imagine that this bubble in the stock market can continue for very long. I'm not the only one saying this, and people are looking at the bubble, respected people, 
are, are thinking a 60, 70% correction in the, in the stock market. Not, not, not a little token 10, 15%, but, but a big, big correction. Just for the record, I, uh, I agree with you that it's different this time for the United States. When I said to you that it's not different, what I meant was historically we've seen things like this. Ancient Rome is, a, is one example. We've seen scenarios of this kind, but you're correct. This is quite different for the U.S. historical experience. Let me ask you about a very practical issue. The typical default investment for U.S. retirees is target date funds. Target date funds hold some $2.5 trillion in assets today. That's something like 10 times what they had been in 2008. In chapter four of your book, you argue that these funds, which are touted as safe and conservative, are anything but. Could you elaborate on that, please? So if you're an investment management firm and you're designing a target date fund, you would design it for profit. And the way you would do that would be to go by the rules. And the rules say that you need to lower the equity allocation as the beneficiary gets closer to his retirement. So you'd want to do that rule. But what you'd like to have is the funds that you make the most profit on be a major allocation at that target date, because that's where all the money is. So here's what you would do. For younger people, you, you have as much equity allocation as you can, because you want to start high and, and, and gradually go down. But near the target date, you would want to have as much as you think will pass muster. And, and today, that number is between 55 and 60% in equities. Now, that's where investment managers get paid the most. They get paid the most on equities. Now, people are writing about the risk in the bonds, because the duration on U.S. bonds for 10-year bonds is, is six. It's normally around three. So by that measure, and duration is a pretty good measure of risk, bonds are twice as risky as, they, as they've ever been historically. So just in general, people are writing about you know, that 60-40 rule. The 40 is wrong because it's really risky. So if you're designing a target date fund and you want to design it for profit, which is what you want to do as an investment management firm, you would have uh, what we have in target date funds right now. And I'll even go a little bit further. The, the target, the two and a half trillion target date fund is, is an oligopoly. And it's run by uh, Vanguard, T. Rowe, and Fidelity. Vanguard is the biggest out of those three. Those three firms uh, manage 65% of the two and a half trillion dollars. Vanguard manages virtually all of the, what's called the passive target date funds. Now, if instead of an investment management firm, you ask a financial engineer, which I sort of consider myself to be, to design the target date fund, what would you do? Well, all these researchers who I mentioned before say at the target date, you need to be as safe as you can be. So I'm focusing on the target date because that's where all the money is. Safe as you can be really means no more than, no more than uh, 30% risky assets. That, that would sort of be the maximum you'd ever want to do. So instead of 60% in equities and 40% risky bonds, you'd be 30% in, in some mix of stocks and bonds, but the other 70% would be in safe assets. And under normal circumstances, safe would be um, the treasury bills and treasury inflation protective securities tips. Safe today, where we're going to see serious inflation, is, 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 is probably tips, but probably not treasury bills, because when we see inflation, money's going to be diluted. The other thing I'll say is uh, PIMCO and others have done surveys, and they've asked the beneficiaries and, and their consultants both how much risk they would take for various age groups. And the answer in these surveys is basically the same, no more than 30% risky assets. And the consultants who are our listeners here, they generally answer the question with how much would, be, would you consider to be a, a big loss 
for those who are near retirement? The consultant answer is no more than 10%. We lost 30% in target date funds in 2008 in the 2010 funds. So I'm, I'm screaming at baby boomers who, if they have defaulted their investments in the target date funds in their 401k, to make a giant leap forward and take their money out of there because they're, they're exposing themselves to way too much risk. What actions do you recommend boomers take right now to achieve a safe asset allocation? So we've been recommending that this, this 30%, no more than 30% risky assets, 7% safe assets, and, and the 70% probably should have serious inflation protection. And, and that's certainly doable. Those who have defaulted and target date funds in their 401k, again, the advice is get out of those for now anyway, and uh, move yourself to safety. Every 401k plan has to have in order, in order to be tax qualified, one option, at least one option that is safe. It could be treasury bills, it could be short-term tips, but there's gotta be at least one on their platform that would move them to safety. So our, our advice has been uh, get out of the way. And the second to that, the re researchers have found that once you're out of the risk zone, like you've been retired for five to 10 years, after that, you can start to re-risk. And it's, it's actually recommended, which is contrary to the, the old rule, 100 minus your age in equities, but they found through uh, various means that as you get older, it's optimal to start to gradually increase your, your, your risk, basically your equity exposure. For those who don't take your advice or who are unlucky enough not to see it and their portfolios are ravaged or for people who simply never saved adequately, what would your advice be for how they can enjoy a dignified retirement? Well, one of our chapters is, is about uh, exactly this. And just the demographics of the baby boomer uh, group are, are mind-boggling. 78 million people, 55 million of them, 70% of them, have saved less than $300,000. That group of 55 million people right now, without any harm to them from the capital markets, is heavily reliant on Social Security and Medicare. Now, the government has told us Social Security is going to run out of money in 2026, Medicare in 2032. Now, I don't want to scare people, but I've been told that running out of money doesn't mean that current recipients are going to be have reduced benefits. I hope that doesn't happen. But in that chapter and in that episode, we go into how it's possible in this country to live on Social Security. And it's not a bad life. It turns out that from your Social Security receipts, you need to find a way to live. Housing. Housing is the first criterion for $700 a month. And for most people, you look at that and I go, I'm, whatever you're paying, you're probably paying much more than 700 a month. But you can live in this country in certain cities you know, fairly well for $700 a month. Or you can uh, move in with friends and share the expense. So that's, that's doable. And then the next level of need, you know, the hierarchy of, of needs, uh, is basically to eat. And there, there, there would be a budget that um, I think is maybe five or $600 a month. So you can do it. It's, it's doable. Not pretty. But in many countries, it'd be luxurious. So the what I call the poor boomers, the, the 55 million people who save less than $300,000, they, they, they can live fairly well in this country, but they need to be frugal and need to think about it. The middle group, uh, fairly um, well off, but their major concern needs to be um, getting sick. You need to think about whether you want to buy long-term care insurance or if you want to take your chances. And, and those, the trade-offs there are not, they're not, they're not easy, but this is not a slam dunk. You don't, it's, there's many people who have given you guidance about what to do. And we don't even try to do that, but we give you references to give you the trade-offs. But if you're a couple 
there's like a 70% plus chance that one of you will re require assisted living before you die. And the cost of that could be astronomical. So that's the middle group. Then the, the top 5% who have saved more than $2 million, they're, they're fine. <laughs> we're not worried about them. But if they were to lose their savings or the middle group in this next market crash, they could easily move into the poor group. And if they could just, especially the middle group could move into the poor, and people are listening to this and they know they're in the middle group, they need to think about how they would like living on social security. And, and they could be really ugly. So for most of these people, making smart social security and Medicare decisions is going to be pretty important. What guidelines? Well, on, on social security, the first decision is, do you want to take it early, middle or late? And there are trade-offs there, but then the, the obvious one in terms of it's probably best to not take it early. If you take it at the, um, the, um, the, the 67 years old, it's currently the, the full retirement uh, date. You would probably want to do that if, for example, you think that 2026 day is going to mean something. And I think it, it, it really could. So if you really think that's going to happen, you probably want to take it early. Then in terms of deferring it to, to a 72, where you get, uh, I think, 15% increase in benefits, you probably want to do that if you think Social Security is going to be around and you expect to live fairly long. Now, the, the, I can picture this graph in my mind because the, the lady, um, Elaine Floyd, this horse from Horse's Mouth, she showed a graph. And if you take your retirement, your Social Security benefit at the normal age, age 67, by the time you're age 85, you will have received a million dollars from Social Security. A million dollars. If you take it early, you have to wait until you're in your 90s to get the million, your million dollars. But it's still a lot of money. Think about that. That's, so it's, it's, a, it's a pretty generous benefit. Then um, Medicare, the, the key decision, I, I, by the way, the other, the other thing on Social Security is survivor benefits. And there you need to be careful about your choices uh, because if one takes it early and the other takes it late, it has implications for what the survivor gets, and it gets really complicated. But there are, there are consultants who will help you, and I, I think they're well worth the money because you're only going to make it. Some of the decisions you can change, but, but the, the time is, is pretty limited. On Medicare, the decisions are, are, I think, in a sense, fairly straightforward. Everybody gets you know, level A and level B, and then there's two other levels, C and D, that cover uh, what the, the uh, others don't cover. And the key decision is what's called an advantage plan. And the advantage plan in some states can be had for no extra cost, but you're limited. It's, it's like an HMO where everything's got to be approved and you know, the access to certain doctors and all that is, is uh, limited. Uh, but that's the most cost effective and the, um, the lowest coverage. If you don't do an advantage plan, you, you do a supplemental plan. There's a host of companies that are bidding for your business. And the obvious thing is, you know, for certain prices, you can get certain levels of coverage. So it's, it is complicated. And, and there again, that, that's where there are companies who will help you um, do the right thing and figure out the, the, right, the right choices. Would you suggest that annuities would help buffer boomer? Yeah, no, I think annuities are great. And they're certainly often discussed for 401k plans because it was so wonderful when we had defined contribution plans and all you had to worry about is that you're gonna get a monthly payment from your defined contribution plan. And if we just get that back, that would be wonderful. Well, you can get it back, you can buy an annuity. Uh, but right now, the interest rates are, are just pitifully low. And one of the questions is, is, is an annuity an investment or is it insurance? For a male, you have generally earned more on an annuity than you would have earned in a high quality bond portfolio. So you actually get a higher return if you're a male. On a female, you earn somewhat less. 
So it's not a bad investment, uh, certainly for the, the safety. You know, your choice would be to put in a high quality bond portfolio. You would actually earn less than that uh, in that choice than in, in an annuity. If you want a level stream, you could uh, buy uh, 20 tips, one a year that mature at different dates uh, and, and no coupons. So you don't have to worry about interest rates fluctuations. And voila, you've got an annuity. And that one is government insured. So you don't have to worry about the solvency of the insurance company. So, so there are ways to do it, but none are pretty because interest rates are at this crazy zero level. Right. Actually, another one that came up, you know, the concept of a time team, those, those apparently are still around. Yeah, and particularly thanks to Moshe Malevsky's reviving it in his book. And ah. yeah, yeah he, he probably deserves the most credit for that. But um, you want to explain Tantines quickly and I'll ask you another question? Yeah, and, and in simple terms, you, um, you throw your money into a pool with other people who um, want to draw from it through time. And that creates a collective annuity. But as people die, their contribution to the Tantine goes to all the others. So it's sort of, um, it's, it's like a uh, deferred annuity in, in many ways. Uh, because if, if you're fortunate enough to live long, uh, you'll you'll get the benefit of the um, the beneficiaries who die, uh, leaving their money to you. You can see all sorts of reasons why it would be hard to make the whole deal fair. Among those would be you certainly don't want the people in the Tanti to know one another because there would be incentives. To there are a lot of murder mysteries that are <laughs> swirl around Tantines. You have a point there. Yes, insurance companies can kind of maintain on anonymity. That would be an advantage. So let me yeah. ask you one more point here. You, your book is not just about how to achieve a dignified retirement, but you also get into how to have a happy one. Maybe you could offer some thoughts on that. It would be a nice way to, to close this interview. Yeah, that's my favorite chapter. And I wanted to end the book on a happy note. So there's this Maslow's hierarchy of, of well-being, and, and that the two bottom parts of the pyramid are you know, housing and food, but the upper levels of the pyramid are, are all in your head. It's uh, just having the right mindset. And we have three different guests on, on this topic. One of them was Larry Siegel, who you, uh, you just interviewed, but it's health, wealth, and, pro- and uh, purpose. So obviously you want to be healthy. That's, you're not going to be happy if you're sick. Wealth helps, and that's sort of the two bottom parts of the pyramid. But purpose covers a whole range of things. And um, one of our, our guests uh, wrote a book with a, his book was um, Retirement, <clears throat> Heaven or Hell. And he said he, he started retirement and retirement hell. And so he had uh, lost his job and was resolved to, to not working again, just retiring because he did save enough and he was um, old enough. But he found that doing nothing was his hell. So he, in his book, talks about for some people, Comfort is uh, just being, doing nothing is heaven. And he says for his mother, all she wanted to do is play cards and be with her friends and watch TV. And that was heaven for her. For him, that wasn't heaven. He had to do something. So he said the other group is, is growth. They need to grow to be productive and, and be challenged. And so that's their heaven. Most people are, are hybrid. Some golf mixed with some productive efforts is, is just right for, for the majority of people. And I think that insights like that are, are extremely helpful because, at least in this country, it shouldn't be too hard to, to have a house and, and, and to buy food. But all the rest of it is gratitude. We need to appreciate that being born now really is, we're, we're lucky <laughs> that we weren't our parents and we weren't our grandparents. Well, I'm lucky to have had you as a guest on the show, and I'm grateful for that as well. And before we close, am I correct, Ron, in observing that you're actually offering your new book for free for a limited time? Yes. Thanks, thanks for bringing that up. There, here's, this is not a commercial because how can I 
there'd be a commercial about something free. So I, I really want people to read the book. The whole mission here is to get the word out and warn people. So um, May 24th through the 28th, you can go on Amazon and uh, find the book. The Kindle version will be free. And the Kindle version is what you want because the, the major benefit of the book is I have links, uh, uh, hyperlinks to uh, videos. So for every chapter, you can read the chapter, but if you'd rather uh, watch and listen, you can do that. Or you might even want to do both. You might want to read the chapter and, and say, oh, I'd like to know a little more about that. Protect your life savings, get Ron's book. I happily paid for mine, but get your copy for free and return the favor by letting other investors know about it. Ron, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks, Gil. Same here. It's a, it's a pleasure. It certainly is. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. This is Gil Weinrich for Seeking Alpha.